can feel it. I can feel it. You can feel it coming in the air tonight. That was awful. What the hell was that? Horribly. I was trying to do the drum part from that song. Do, 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 do. Okay, well, enough of this bullshit. It's 9.07. We gotta hurry up. Yeah. Yeah! Okay, here we go. Truly, human nature changes little. We may be civilized on the surface, but down deep, we are primitive. He goes directly at Khalil and impales him. So, in comes his horse. Oh no, the wild card. Here, uh, Iron Dink, as it ricochets off his brass balls. And Lucas says, you are one ugly motherfucker. He dies of dysentery. Dysentery is where you die of extreme diarrhea. <laughs> he caught the shits and he died. <laughs> at the ripe old age of 35. May the better man emerge victorious. Welcome to Conjectural Combat, where the factual engage in fisticuffs. I am your host, I guess, since we're doing this a little differently. Um... Matt, and I'm joined, as always, by my cohort, Alex. Yes. And a new cohort, I guess. Yes, a third edition. Yes. Back a third wheel. Yes. We have turned this from a duo to a triumvirate, if I can use a historical term. Yes. A mighty triumvirate of three great minds. Yes, we are, like, three-fourths of a Ghostbusters. <laughs> so all we need Just- to do is find a Winston. Yeah, we're just missing that Ernie Huston. Well, let's not get into the minutia of it too much, but if we if we were the three Ghostbusters, who do you think you would be? Just self talk Uh, Ray. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, you're a good Ray. Yeah, Ray or Egon. Well, I want to be Egon. I want to be Egon. I call Egon. Egon's mine. But that just means he's going to be Venkman, and do you think he's Venkman material? No, well, how about this? In the context of this... I feel like if we're if we're applying to the history thing, I would be the most like Egon because I'm the most knowledgeable. Not to toot my own horn, but to toot motherfucker. Alrighty, we're engaging in fisticuffs. Yeah, all right. Let's 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 go ahead and introduce the third member of our mighty group. Um, yeah. People who listen to this, all two of you, um, may recognize his voice from a previous episode we did. I think the last episode we published from. Earlier this year, um, yes. our second, and he, is, and he has been the only guest star on this show so far. So if you haven't figured it out, well, I mean, what's wrong with you? It's Winston Churchill, ladies and gentlemen. Winston Churchill. Uh, no, um, Mr. James Lewis. James, welcome, welcome, welcome. Once and for all, I consider myself more of a Lewis, to be honest. Hey, uh, yeah, okay. I, well, yeah. I've got the glasses, and I make good decisions. If we're going out the the realm of the of the of the four, then Alex or Walter pick. You're ridiculous. But, I mean, that's what I heard. You know, I'll take it. Okay, good. So anyway, um, dickless aside, we we are we are changing up how we do things here. Uh, we we made a decision. You and I both made a decision. I'd say now again. I think I said this one of the last times we talked, but this was his idea, folks. Yes. This was his yeah, we idea. covered this in the last episode, where this show formerly known as the place where the factual and fictional engage in fisticuffs yeah. is no more. And now, now only the factual remain. <laughs> that fight was won. <laughs> I like the idea of conjectural combat being a show where even the premise is up for grabs. <laughs> even the premise can die. Everything <laughs> is a fight. Yeah, the premise was engaged in a death battle. Those initial five episodes that we did, 
That was actually the battle for the soul of conjectural combat. The fictional loss to the factual. Who knows how long I'll be on the show. I may die three episodes in. You may die by the end of this one. Or I may die. Or Nat may die. I will never die. You hear me? (laughs) I'm the goddamn Highlander. I've witnessed all of history. (laughs) I will witness history to the end of time. To the death of the sun. Destroys this planet. I will be floating through space. By the way, I love how the second episode into us getting rid of fiction, the fictional element of this, we bring up two fictional. <laughs> <laughs> I hey, they took Highlander place in the eighties, which is history, so it counts. Highlander versus Ghostbusters would be a pretty good one. Ah, well, we already did Highlander versus Doctor Who, so that's true. We didn't talk about Highlander the series Highlander <laughs> though. Nobody talks about that version. All right, let's we're, we're getting too far into fictional territory. Jim. Yes. Yes, let's, let's rein it in. Rein it in, please. Rein it in, uh, history teacher, Matt. Yes, history teacher. Um, so, uh, let's just get, let's get down to the heart of the matter. Let's stop fucking around. Stop bullshitting. Let's stop running our, or flapping our gums. And let me flap my gums for, uh, what is, of course, going to be a disproportionate amount of time. Yeah, because now you have to rein in two of us, so good uh, luck with that. Um, we'll, we'll get into how sort of the dynamic is going to work a little differently when we get past this, the, I guess, the backstory. I never really officially called it anything. The tail of the tape. There we go. Usually, when before I do this, I like to sort of talk about the theme of these, the two people I picked. I picked them usually as a study and compare and contrast, and you know, people who have similarities, people who are wildly different, people who sort of bring up themes in history. And I chose these two tonight because this is something that um, is talked a lot about in history and politics, um, even in fiction. It's a staple of of uh, superhero comics, Batman comics especially. And you have my it, attention. Uh, this question, of course, is, um, can one man truly make a difference? It brings in the, this idea of fatalism and destiny and all this stuff, but through the course of human events, can one man truly make a difference? And that's something that, you know, history sort of is divided over because there's these two main schools of thought. Um, one was more accepted than it used to be, and that's, uh, What's known as the great man of history theory, and this idea that you know, once every so often this figure bursts onto the scene that is remarkably gifted, who can you know chart the course of human events and dictate the whole you know world and change history just simply by his actions. And I say his actions because it's history, so it's going to be a guy, um, unfortunately. <laughs> History is misogynist. Yes, we'll, we're going to work about fixing that in later episodes. Um, um, the other school of thought is the idea that history is um, series and trends. You know, it's not necessarily humans as one. It's not one person. You know, everybody is subject to these trends and these changes and these things that. Not just one person does that. Many people do over the course of many generations. Like a good example would be like Julius Caesar. Like people always talk about Caesar was this wildly gifted general, politician, you know, charming, blah, 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 blah. He was. He was. But the conditions in Rome at the time were ripe for him to make his rise and become dictator. It's not something that he did on his own necessarily. It was just because the Roman system was set up by people way before he was ever born. And people who made decisions like, you know, the guys we talked about 
uh, in one of our earlier episodes, uh, Marius and Sulla, you know, their civil war sort of uh, opened the door for someone like Caesar to rise and take power. You know, so really he's kind of like the poly D of Roman politics, <laughs> just riding on the coattails of the snooky and situations before him. Exactly. Well, well I, I wouldn't see where that Caesar that much. But I, I can kind of see where that train of thought is coming from now that you explain it that way. Because, I mean, really, when you think about it, would Lincoln have been as effective as a president if the country wasn't torn asunder? Yeah, and, like, Lincoln Lincoln wouldn't even been elected in, if it were not for the divisive political situation in the 1860 election. You know, He wins because the Democratic Party was split three ways, and those three different candidates running for president – split the Democratic vote so much that he was able to win essentially in a landslide because he took the Republican North, you know. It's always very fascinating when you find these little fixed points in history where it's like everything happened the only way it possibly could. Like everything just clicked into place. And sometimes that's great, like in the case of Lincoln. And then sometimes you get things like the rise of Adolf Hitler. Exactly. It's like, ah, why did that Rube Goldberg machine of tragedy have to go (laughs) exactly that direction? That actually ties in perfectly, James, perfectly to what I want to talk about today because – you get a gold star. Yes, um, because you mentioned Hitler, and Hitler is very much central to something that involves one of our combatants. Because Hitler probably would not have existed, or well, he would have existed, but he would not have very likely become Chancellor of Germany and started World War II had it not been for this guy, our first combatant. Because had it not been for him, we probably wouldn't have even had a first World War. And the guy I'm talking about, of course, is. Our first combat, hailing from Bosnia and the Kingdom of Serbia, Serbia, born Serbia, born in 1894. 1894. The one, the, one, the, the only, 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 Gavrilo, Gavrilo Princip, assassin of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and the man who a lot of people blame for the start of World War One. And that dick that launched a thousand gas masks. <laughs> and his opponent, hailing from the United States of America, born in 1939, the Pinko Pugilist himself, Lee Harvey Oswald. My God. It's like dead shot and death going at it. Well, let's not give these two guys that much credit by playing in the world-class assassins. As you'll see... They both got incredibly lucky. They essentially fell ass over on themselves and changed history by simple acts of violence. So, um, fellas, I'll give it to you. Which one would you like to know about first? Lee Harvey Oswald or Gavrilo Princip? Do we, uh, like, in this case, do we flip a coin or something? Um, I'll let you talk it out amongst yourselves. James, what do you think? Gentlemen. Act like gentlemen. As a gentleman of the South, I'm tempted to lean towards Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, three namely, as we like to call him. <laughs> but Gavrilo Princip is such a great name. I really want to see how many times Matt can say that without messing it up again. Oh, don't worry. I, I want to see that too, so I'm full agreement on this. There are plenty of Serbian names <laughs> that I get to mispronounce. <laughs> this is going to be amazing. It's like Christmas. I think, actually, no, I remember I'm looking through my notes. I think I redacted some of them because I was looking at my things like, okay, I, I'm not going to be able to get through this in a timely manner. So I give them surnames. Scotty. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, red face. You know, a red face. 
Murder hands. I feel like somehow that's racist, but I don't know how. So, Gavrilo Princip was born in Bosnia in 1894. Now, Bosnia, um, it's been in the news over the past uh, 20 years because of wars and ethnic problems there. And a lot of that is to do because Bosnia is part of what you call the uh, Balkan. Uh, peninsula it's sort of it's sort of across the the sea from uh Italy and it's filled with a lot of uh, different ethnic people uh different mixing religions because that part of the world is sort of where Muslims and the the Middle East start to encroach upon Western Europe so it's sort of like a weird kind of combination of a lot of different religions a lot of different languages so it's like a, a grab of bag of old world tensions. Yeah, exactly. Um, and at the time of, of his birth, 1894, Bosnia was under the rule of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That sounds like an 80s action <laughs> monarchy or something. Do you expect Ivan Drago to come out? <laughs> yeah, I think that would be amazing. Rocky just fights the whole Austro-Hungarian Empire. <laughs> As I was saying before, uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it's... Uh, it was a hodgepodge of kingdoms and nationalities. Like you had like easily, I think, ten different languages spoken this in this empire, quote unquote empire. Um, it was the last remnants of what was known as the Holy Roman Empire, um, and that stretched back you know a thousand years to like uh, Charlemagne. So it was very old. It and then like the Ottoman Empire for years, they called both of them like the sick men. Of Europe because they were always on the verge of collapse and revolt and all this stuff. And at at a young age, Prince, one of his idols was Bogdan Zarachi, famous fashion designer. Okay, and, now they're just making these up. And he was a Serbian Serbian martyr who was the would-be assassin of the Austro-Hungarian governor of Bosnia. Um, that was sort of the problem with the the ethnic tensions was that you know. These people from Bosnia had people from Germany and Austria as their kings and leaders. And, you know, it's people who didn't look anything like them, people who didn't have their same religion, people who didn't even speak their own same language were seen as their rulers and, you know, all around betters. And that creates a lot of tension. So in 1910, when he was 16, Princip joined a group that was called Young Bosnia. They were a boy band? <laughs> yeah, they were a boy band. You've heard of young, One Direction, they were Young Bosnia. Uh, Princip, of course, was the cute one. Their aim was for Serbia to break free of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. I sung in their classic "Break Free." <laughs> Girl, you know you gotta try for genetic completion. I don't know. Things really broke down when it came to the songwriting aspect. Well, I'm sorry, I'm translating something that's in Bosnia. <laughs> it makes a lot more sense if you speak their language. What we're saying is the manager screwed them. Yeah. Bosnian run DMC. <laughs> their their aim, young Bosnia, they wanted Bosnia to break free of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and join the Kingdom of Serbia, um, because they felt like they were more ethnically aligned with Serbia. They were all you know Slavs and they're from the same part of the world, um, same outlook, same same goals, same cultural similarities. Um, Two years after he joined Young Bosnia, uh, Prince was kicked out of school for uh, being involved in a demonstration against the Austro-Hungarian government. Not long after that, he left his home country and went to Serbia. It was while he was in Serbia, specifically Serbia's capital, Belgrade, he came into contact with a group known 
as the Black Hand. <gasps> My God, Doctor Hurt, <laughs> the hole in things. Was the Black Hand like the goth band that they were rivals with? Well, Young Bossy, that was sort of they they went through a rebranding phase where they got dark and edgier. Actually, I just realized I got my DC Universe references wrong. Black Hand is the Green Lantern supervillain. Well, what's what's the one for Batman? Black Glove. Black Glove. Uh, oh, Black Hand inside the Black Glove. So, yeah, I either way, I brought fictional elements into this, and I should really shut my mouth because this is Matt's territory. <laughs> You've been banished from referencing your DC. I'll humor some of your references, but know that you're on the thinnest of ice. <laughs> So the uh, the Black Hand was among the most radical anti-Austro-Hungarian organization in the Balkan Peninsula. Um, they were dedicated to Bosnian independence, and they were ironically white power. <laughs> Look, it's just a name. <laughs> <laughs> you, you joke, but there was some stuff with Turks at the time, so maybe you don't know. Um, interesting enough, uh, Princip was rejected. By the Black Hand. They thought he was too young, and I think he was real skinny and too frail. So they wanted you know, their death assassins to be a little more hardy. <laughs> so like just walking up to them with a cardboard sign that says, We'll assassinate for food. <laughs> While he was rejected by the main cell in uh, Serbia, uh, back home, he fell in with uh, this guy, Danilo Leish who operated a terrorist cell of the Black Hand Splinter Group in Bosnia. And he recruited Princip and five other students in early 1914 for an attempted assassination. And their target was the crown prince of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Franz Ferdinand. Wait, 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 wait. So this is Gavrilo Princip's Splinter Cell, Bosnian tomorrow. (laughs) Exactly. With Michael Ironside as Grevrillo Princip. All new HD graphics. Can there please be a Splinter Cell prequel set in the turn of the century where Sam Fisher must assassinate Archduke <laughs> Franz Ferdinand with his splits? I want to see how they explain night vision. That would be amazing. Like he's got like like candles like on his like <laughs> on his. He's got like a headband with just a candle or like a, a gas lantern, like a coal miner. Be the princip. Um, oh I think that's a good spot to halt the princip train for a minute. With the fate of Franz Ferdinand in the balance. Yes. To go and talk about Lee Harvey Oswald. A sentence very few people have ever said. <laughs> I'm pretty sure his family may have said it one time. Before they changed their names. Um, so Lee Harvey Oswald was born in New Orleans, Louisiana in 1939. Actually, the very same year that the Second World War started. His father died before he was born, and his mother was a single mother, and she moved around with him a lot when you know he was real young. He claimed to be a Marxist at the age of 15 and would constantly write letters to the Socialist Party of America. Wait, wait, wait. Is that like how everyone has that one cousin in high school who's like totally a libertarian? No, really? Yeah, pretty much. You you kind of see when I get into Oswald's backstory, he sort of was the type that he was he was America's first hipster. I, I would hipster's close, but he yeah he's sort of the type to where he was way into it so much that you kind of felt like maybe he was compensating for something. And Jack Ruby shot him because he made his hat look bad. <laughs> um, speaking of Jack Ruby, I have to say that um, 
with the stuff with Oswald. I'm going officially on stuff as presented by the Warren Commission. I'm not getting into conspiracy theories. I'm not really getting into anything other than what has been presented as fact in this case. So That said, it was the comedian who killed JFK. <laughs> Oswald actually um, had an older brother at the time who was a Marine. And uh, pretty much as soon as he was able to, Oswald followed in his footsteps and enlisted in the Marine Corps. Um, according to interviews later and family friends, stuff, they said that the reason he was so eager to join the Marines was to get away from his mother. She was apparently very overbearing. While in the Marine Corps, Oswald was graded marksman in sharpshooter ranks as a in the rifle aiming or whatever you call it. I'm not a professional soldier, but the shootings. So, <laughs> some people have, have argued that this is him being labeled as marksman is not indicative of him having uh, superior marksmanship. But I don't know. That's I feel like that's sort of them looking for stuff. They're trying to make him out to be bullseye. <laughs> uh, he would eventually go to Japan and work at a marine base as a radar operator. Whoa, whoa, whoa! The RV Oswald had a Japan story like Wolverine. But wait, don't worry. His Japan story did not take place in Japan. It took place in Russia. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> he had a Russian story. Wow. Yes. Yes. But it's interesting, interesting to note that Oswald was a radar operator in Japan, and the base he worked in in Japan was where uh, U-2 spy planes, um, they started out their path. They would fly from Japan over the Soviet Union and take strategic you know, spy pictures of missile bases, installations, anything that the CIA and the intelligence apparatus needed. They would take pictures, and they would land somewhere in Germany or in Western Europe. But, like I said, that's important to note because of a later theory that would come out of it. <laughs> Not too far into his Marine career, he was court-martialed, Oswald was, because <laughs> he actually shot himself in the elbow with an unauthorized <laughs> twenty-two his pistol. first hit. <laughs> <laughs> then... He was trying to assassinate a flea. Then he was court-martialed again for fighting with a sergeant whom he thought was responsible for punishing him in the whole shooting matter, where he accidentally shot himself. He picked up a rock and rolled it at his head, knocked him back into the left. He was demoted from private first class to private and was briefly imprisoned for his, uh, <laughs> for, for his assault. For crimes against an elbow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that flea sued. That flea's family, you mean. The flea never survived. <laughs> and he was he was punished again. Because when he was in the Philippines uh, on guard duty, for no apparent reason, he just fired his rifle into the jungle. <laughs> he was trying to assassinate the king of the jungle. <laughs> I no, have he, your actually, he actually came across the predator. <laughs> Oswald, I thought you weren't afraid of no man. This ain't no man. If it bleeds, I can miss it. Wait, 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 wait. Does that mean that years later... The Predator went undercover in the highest office of the land. <laughs> <laughs> All right, this is getting way too out there. Rain it back in, goddammit, with history. Before the Xenomorphs show up. <laughs> <laughs> They're on to us, guys. Whoever wins, the nation mourns. Despite all his bullshit and shooting himself and starting fights and trying to kill the jungle itself. Oswald left the Marines on his own will. He was finally discharged in 1959. He claimed that his mother was sick, and only he could take care of her. So on that emergency provision, he got to be uh, 
discharged. But it's interesting to note that a month later, Oswald traveled to the Soviet Union. There he tried to defect, but the Soviets turned him down. Like, nah, we're good. We need good marksmen. He was sort of angry and pissed off at the Soviets turning him down. So he cut his wrists and claimed he attempted suicide. After shooting their flag. <laughs> no, he shot at his own wrist. <laughs> he was placed in a mental hospital in Moscow for a week for observation, and then he was finally discharged. And apparently he met again with Soviet officials, and this time he brought up that he was a former Marine. You would think that would be on the table the first time he talked to them. Well, I don't like to brag. By the way, I just um, want to say I love how at this point Lee Harvey Oswald really is just that generation's version of a really pissy teenager. <laughs> Like, he's totally into his Marxist literature, and he's goofing off at his job, and he keeps cutting himself, but <laughs> it's the 50s, so he's shooting himself. Trying to defect to other nations. I'm going to go live with Greg. He understands me. After, he's going through. After he met with these Soviets, he shows up at the American embassy in Moscow and tells them he's defecting. He gives them his passport. Like, why don't you let Soviet Russia pay for your piano lessons? Oswald told the Americans that he would let the Russians know that he was a radar operator with the Marines and would disclose any and all information he had. I say that, like I said earlier about the U-2 planes, is that it's interesting to note that just seven months after Oswald defected, um, a U-2 spy plane uh, was shot down over the Soviet Union. So, I mean, some people have speculated that Oswald gave them information that eventually led to that. He could have told them about the flight plans and all this stuff. Who knows? Um, some people, you know, don't don't believe it, but I just thought it was something interesting to make note of. That. Well, actually, Oswald shot it while trying to open up a beer can. God damn it. <laughs> After he defected to the Soviet Union, he went to Minsk, which is today is in Belarus, which at the time was just part of the Soviet Union at large. While in Minsk, he worked at uh, as a machine operator at a radio factory. And according to a lot of people interviewed and a lot of scuttlebutt and hearsay and all this stuff, um, he lived uh, a lot better than most Soviet workers did at the time. Um, he supposedly had a lot of money. He was flashing around, dating a lot of women. Um, that, again, goes to the theory that Oswald was paid money by the KGB or the Soviet Union in some regard for the intelligence he gave. Apparently, not long after being in the Soviet Union, he wrote to the American embassy asking for his passport. Uh, he wanted it back, apparently. He was sort of tired of living in Russia. I've shot myself seven times. <laughs> Two months after writing to the embassy, he met a 19-year-old woman named Marina Prusakova. Prus there we go, Prusakova. They married six weeks after Maiden, and they had a daughter the following year. Only then he had to battle her father, Sinjin, for her hand in marriage. <laughs> Oswald tried to kill himself, but ended up killing her father. Well, he put the sword through his own chest, <laughs> and it went straight through and stabbed him in the back. He can't even hurry carry properly. Eventually, for whatever reason, and this is where, again, people argue and debate, but Oswald was allowed to return to the United States. He was, got his passport back. He got his citizenship back, and he was able to come back with his wife and daughter to the United States in 1962, and they moved to Dallas, Texas. The place where their destinies waited. Yes, and so... That's not foreboding at all. No, not at all. So back to Princip, our Serbian shooter. The one who actually won't miss his own elbow. 
Well, we'll, we'll see. He, he, yeah, you'll see. Um, so I, this is where I sort of have to get into some exposition, as it were. Last we left Princip, we were talking about how this, this group of, uh, Flinter group of the Black Hand were preparing to assassinate Franz Ferdinand. Um, to give you some context about what was going on at this time, Europe was, uh, a good metaphor, I guess, would be a powder keg. Europe was sort of very tense. People, felt like war, something was going to happen soon. There was a war on the way. That is because there was a lot of factors that go that go into this, and this is where I sort of have trouble, because I have to sort of explain, sum up 100 years worth of history as concisely as possible. And now it's time for Extra Credit with Professor Matt. Part of it goes back to Napoleon, during the Napoleonic Wars of a hundred years before this time, in the 18, uh, early 1800s, it was Napoleon in France. They changed the game, so to speak, when before the French Revolution, before the Napoleonic Wars, um, armies were small. Like, if you look at, like, the American Revolution, like, Washington at most had, like, 1,300 men under his command. You know, uh, maybe, uh, maybe 2,000. Armies were smaller. They were professional. They were, you know, they fought battles. You know, in the fields, away from populations, all this stuff. But Napoleon in France, they they change it up. They come up with this idea of mobilization. And mobilization is when a country goes to war, everybody goes to war. You know, the people who make uh, like iron, the, the forges and stuff, they go to work on making cannons. That you know, the soldiers, everybody who can fight will fight, and that's what gave France such upper hand because they were these massive armies that Napoleon was commanded uh, by the standard today, like as many as like 30, 40,000 men. And that sort of started a trend throughout all of Europe and even into the Americas. Like if you look at like the U.S. Civil War, you know, like Lee had like 90,000 men. Sometimes Grant's army was almost as big as a million. You know, there were these massive armies out in the field now because Napoleon showed that, you know, sort of the way to win was to have more men than other people. No one would think, you know, this kind of common sense, but. And you can't even get enough people to act accordingly in a baseball tournament. <laughs> like, how could you get them to effectively fight on a field? Well, see, that's what it is like. They, this idea, the way mobilization worked was that you still had your strong, smaller army, but you supplemented that with reservists. And reservists were people who would train, like it was like how the National Guard here is today. Like they would train and drill and prepare in the event that your country went to war, they'd be caught up. And suddenly your your army of sixty thousand men suddenly gets five hundred thousand men to supplement it, and then you've got big fucking army, you know. Well, could you say that maybe the line that had been drawn up until that point was that Wars were only meant to be fought by warriors. Um, I think that's, that's kind of the point where maybe. we had the we had the notion that oh no, everyone should fight and die. Now we're like that, yes, but sort of war pre the Napoleonic Wars and pre World War One. Um, war was seen as a gentlemanly pursuit. Exactly. You know, these these men, these generals, are, are we'll move our men over here, we'll flank these, blah 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 blah, and then we'll sign us peace treaty. I'll get this piece of territory. And then we'll be done, you know. And then you—that would be the end of the war. You know, thirty guys would die, and this this stretch of land would go to this other country, and you'd be done with it. And then maybe a couple of years, a war, second war, would start up, and 
30 or more people die, that piece of land would switch over. You know, wars didn't have the devastating effects that they do now because this idea of total war was sort of started by Napoleon. And we see later uh, people like Sherman and Grant sort of hit upon that idea that, you know, when you go to war, Every, either everybody's at war or nobody's at war. And that's sort of what Europe took that to be. Everybody is doing something. This idea of everybody working for the war effort. And that's sort of where that started in the hundred years before that. Um, it's, it's basically a global version of, hey, can you guys help me move this week? Come on. <laughs> Another thing that also was uh, technology and the rise of industry. Um, the 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 way technology grew in the 19th century into the early 20th century by just leaps and bounds and stuff, and with cannons and you know muskets no longer were a thing and you know powder loaded uh, muzzle loaders uh, now you had cartridges you had rifles you had uh, no longer did you just have simple cannons you had artillery pieces you had planes getting into the mix um, you'd eventually have tanks as the war drug on as everything industrialized. As you figure out a way to industrialize uh, uh, the production of pillows, the production of shoes, the production of cars, you also figure out a way how to industrialize the production of rifles. Because um, an army with two million men is going to be worth a damn if only half of them have rifles. And now you crunk out as many rifles as you could men, you know, thanks to the Industrial Revolution and the rise of industry. Um, yeah, the first thing humanity seems to always be interested in advancing in terms of the modern scope of technology and how far advanced we are is how to effectively kill each other. It's the one market they'll always have open positions for. Someone will always need some killing. Um, and to sort of throw an, this into the mix, um, this idea of, uh, of politics playing into it, because we've seen how soldiers and you know even weapons led to this condition, but the politicians had a uh, hand in this, especially a guy known as Otto von Bismarck, one of the great, uh, wily, cunning, magnificent bastards in world history. Also uh, one of the great names of history. Mm-hmm. Bismarck sort of, if you think of like a supervillain, he was that. He was scheming, conniving, smart, very good at diplomacy. Um, his, he also had a cape. <laughs> he did. You can see photos of him in a cape. Um, there are uh, at the time of his, he was chancellor of uh, Prussia, and then later, when Prussia became the German Empire, the chancellor of Prussia. That's sort of like their version of president. And the way he saw things was that Europe. There were five great powers in Europe. There was Germany, Austro, Hungary, Russia, France, and Britain. So that's five powers. And what he saw, his his. Uh, his philosophy was never let yourself be on the opposite end of the spectrum. He always had two allies with him, always. Like he always courted Austro-Hungary and Russia on his side because he wanted, you know, these two powers because that way it isolated France and Britain. Well, Bismarck got fired in the early 1890s by uh, Kaiser Wilhelm, the emperor of Germany. And he took over the diplomacy and he ended up quickly alienating Russia. And Russia went to side with France because if you look at a map of, of Europe at the time, Germany is right in the middle of France or right between France and Russia. They were always skate like people always, you know, like to criticize Germany for being ultra violent, ultra militaristic and stuff. But you have to think they were surrounded on both sides by people who they had been fighting 
for hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. You know, you can't blame somebody for being a little worried about being surrounded when they were surrounded. They were like the global version of the bullied middle child. Yeah. Stop fighting. As Russia and France got close and became allies, there's this pact that was put into place by France and Russia. It essentially says that if Germany invades one of us, or if Germany declares war on one of us, you have to come to our defense. And Germany had a similar promise with Austria-Hungary. The only one who was sort of out of the loop in this was uh, Great Britain. They sort of had a, a kind of a, a handshake deal with France. That, yeah, if someone invades you, yeah, we'll help out. But it was nothing that was real strong. There was nothing on paper. Um, yes, we'll provide tea and scones. And to throw into that matter, there was also Russia was seen sort of as – Russia saw itself as when it comes to those Eastern European countries, those Slavic nations, they saw themselves as the protector of the Slavs. You know, they saw Austro-Hungary wasn't, you know, they were a bunch of Austrians. They were a bunch of Germans. They didn't really have much in common with with Serbia and with Bosnia. They saw, the Russians saw themselves more ethnically and culturally aligned. So they always looked at them as themselves as sort of the big brother to Eastern Europe. And that would play into it as it went on. So we've got a lot of men in these big professional armies, um, We've got a lot of new weapons, including like machine guns and gas and all these other horrible things that, uh, and even simple stuff like barbed wire. Barbed wire, you, you think of barbed wire as something very simple, but you can't under, underestimate its, its importance in the First World War because men at times would get hung on it, you know, and it would just stop drives dead in their place because you couldn't go around it. But you have all these new weapons, all these new defenses, all these new tactics. Uh, more men, more weapons, and all these complicated, uh, convoluted alliances. I think in a history paper I wrote, I described it as a Bismarckian web that sort of entangled Europe. That was also Otto von Bismarck's signature weapon, the Bismarckian web. <laughs> uh, oh, I haven't snared you yet again, Spider-Man. <laughs> I would say that if, if there was any Marvel Comics counterpart, Victor Von Doom would be I think, Bismarck's closest. I was thinking more Batroc the Leaper. Whoa, come on. Well, Bismarck was an excellent kickboxer, so. <laughs> so, having said all of that to set the stage, on June 15th of 1914, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie go to Sarajevo as part of their tour through the kingdom of Austro-Hungary. The route that they were going to go down was published in the newspaper in, in advance, so Princip and his group had time to place men along the route. Plenty of men. There were, I think, at least a half dozen men there. They all had guns and hand grenades and cyanide to kill themselves, push come to shove. So the motorcade goes through Sarajevo, and it passes the first two men without incident. The, uh, people have said that they sort of chickened out and they backed down at the last moment. But the third assassin wasn't. He didn't back down. And he threw a hand grenade at the motorcade. But... He threw it too 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 strongly, and it bounced against the top of the car, and it flew over the Archduke's head. And it actually, because it was on the time delay, it it exploded underneath the car behind Franz Ferdinand, and it killed everybody in that car. Um, the, Which was carrying the surviving members of Young Bismarck. <laughs> the, the assassin fled from the crowd and took a cyanide pill, and he jumped into the river, nearby river, to commit suicide. But... So there was a couple of problems with that because the cyanide pill was bad. 
it only caused him to vomit and throw up and get him sick. Also, because it was the middle of the summer, the river was too shallow. He was like, it was like two feet deep, the river that he jumped in. <laughs> wow. It's like a Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. He's just wading around in shin deep water, vomiting on himself. When, of course, obviously, there was an assassination attempt on the Archduke's life, uh, motorcade broke away from the route and sped away. So, Prince was farther along on the route. And when this happens, he leaves. You know, he, I mean, his, his shot at Ferdinand's over. So he goes to a nearby restaurant to get a sandwich. And while he's in the restaurant getting his sandwich and eating, Franz Ferdinand tells his driver he wants to go to the hospital to see the people injured in the attack, you know, the victims and stuff. And so the, the driver complies, but the problem is he wasn't a native of Sarajevo and he gets lost. And he ends up sort of getting stuck in this turnaround. And he, he chokes down his car. And so this is 1914. It take, took a while once cars choked down for them to start back up. And as he was attempting to start it up, Gavrilo Princip stepped out of the sandwich shop. <laughs> and not five feet away from him was Franz Ferdinand and his wife. A what? I just imagine he's still got like a mouthful of sandwiches <laughs> and just comes falling out. It's like... He turns around to leave. Marcellus Wallace crosses the street with donuts. <laughs> yes. Oh, hell no. This is one of those things that people always talk about. Like, if this were a book or a movie or something, people would deride it for being too much of a coincidence. You know, it's just, of all the places in Sarajevo to choke down, you had to choke down right in front of one of the assassins who was determined to kill you. This is a Tarantino plus. So naturally, when he sees that his target is only five feet away, Princeton pulls out his gun and shoots two times. The first bullet hit Franz Ferdinand in his jugular. The second shot uh, struck Ferdinand's wife in the abdomen. They both died on the way to the hospital while Princeton took cyanide. And naturally, as we know from the first guy, he only vomited. And this murder sent... Shockwaves throughout all of Europe. The Austro-Hungarian Empire blamed Serbia for it. And this is another one of those conspiracy theories of history. People claim that the Black Hand were actually working for the Serbian military. They were, it was state-sponsored terrorism that they were in Bosnia starting shit to try to start a revolt. Because Serbia had fought Austro-Hungary and even, I think, the uh, Ottoman Empire once before. And they had beaten them. And they thought that Serbia was trying to lay its hands on Bosnia. So Austro-Hungary blames Serbia for the attack, and they send them this letter um, that's since been called the July Ultimatum. And it was a list of demands uh, for Serbia. Like, it was, like, stuff that... The whole reason the list was sent, because they wanted Serbia to turn it down. Like, it's stuff like, you know, you have to abandon your military. Um, someone from the Austro-Hungarian Empire will help you run state affairs. It's just all kinds of outlandish stuff. When the deadline passed and Serbia didn't comply with the demands, Austria-Hungary quickly declared war on them. Serbia declared war on Austria-Hungary. Um, and seeing that Serbia was threatened, Russia sort of did that thing like I talked about where they saw themselves as the protector of Eastern Europe. They declare war on Austria-Hungary, which then kicks in the agreement Germany has with Austria-Hungary, and they declare on war, war with Russia. My God, it's like a series of fail-safes being activated. It, it it's is. Like the it's the end of Doctor Strangelove. That's what it is a lot. Um, 
And and, the, and this is where it gets weird because Germany initiates a thing called the Schlieffen Plan. And it sounds sinister. It does. Um, the Schlieffen Plan was designed in the late 1800s by this German count named von Schlieffen. And it was a contingency plan on the event that Russia and France both declare war on Germany. What Germany does is, because Russia is so big and it's technologically uh, backwards, especially compared to Germany and France, Russia has a lot of men that they can call up for mobilization, but it takes them a lot longer than it does France and it takes Germany and all these other countries. So what Germany does is they put a token force of men along the Russian border to hold back any early Russian attempts while the, the main thrust of their force goes and fights France. The idea is that they knock France out of the war quickly and show, and you know, get on back to the other side of the country to fight Russia. That and is a well-played game of risk right there. Part of this plan is what's the riskiest part of this plan is that in order to beat France to deliver this knockout punch, they have to outflank the French army and invade Belgium. And Belgium is a neutral country. Um, it's supposed to be neutral. Like there's this uh, the thing when Belgium was created out of parts of France and um, the Netherlands, it was given a solemn promise that it would remain neutral in any war. And no country could invade it or declare war upon it, and it followed that. But the second that um, the second that Germany invaded Belgium, they would get the United Kingdom involved in the war because the United Kingdom considered itself the guarantor of Belgium neutrality, and the only way you know they would fight for Belgium, they wouldn't fight for France, but they'd fight for Belgium. So it's amazing to imagine anyone saying. I shall fight for you, <laughs> Belgium. <laughs> like it's the Red Viper taking up for Tyrion. <laughs> I will be your champion, Belgium. For waffles! <laughs> you joke, but that that was in the early days of the war, that was a big rallying cry was for Belgium, you know? <laughs> I, I thought you meant for waffles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wish. The coming alive. But, uh, so the Schlieffen Plan, like I said, Germany initiates the Schlieffen Plan. And they send while while again they they do this again like with Russia a token force sits along the the French and German border to to hold the French back to keep them in place while this great flank maneuver runs through Belgium and tries to outflank France. Let me give you an idea of the size of this army. There was about seven hundred and fifty thousand men that went through Belgium, which doesn't sound like a whole lot compared to our modern day thing. But people speculate that number is about the size of Napoleon's army that he took into Russia. That's about the size of the Roman Empire's army at its height in the you know thousands of years before this. So it is definitely one of the largest armies the world has seen at this time, and it goes through Belgium to fight um, to fight uh, France. And naturally, because they invade Belgium, the UK gets into the war. So now you've got France, Russia, and um, England versus Germany, Austro-Hungary, and even eventually the Ottoman Empire. So you've got the Allies, or what they call them the Triple Entente versus the Central Powers. And again, I, again, I love how the First World War is essentially a long series of favors being called in. Yes, um, yeah, I mean that's what it, like <laughs> the Ottomans were so fucking shady, like. Like they were neutral for the first few months. What they pretty much did was they took they negotiated with both sides. 
if we enter on your side, what will you give us? Is what they pretty much said. How much will you pay us? How much land and territory do we get from you if we join your side of the war? And because France and England said, no, you don't get anything from us, they pretty much sided with Germany because Germany was like promising them the moon and all these British colonies and stuff. So they, they sided with Germany. And the moon. I mean, literally. And the moon. <laughs> that crescent, imagine that crescent up on the moon. <laughs> um, so what eventually happens is because of these, these great new defensive measures like barbed wire and machine guns, whole offensives are bogged down. Rush, like, Germany's plan to swiftly knock out France is stalled into Belgium, into parts of France. Um, and this new war that everyone knew was coming turns out to be pretty fucking horrible. Oh, I've seen the gas masks. Because in the first month alone, in August 1914, there are 1.7 million casualties. There were close to a million casualties in the U.S. Civil War over four years. Fun slash sobering fact. Yes. The deformities seen in the First World War are the reason monster movies exist. Is that right? I never knew that. Yeah, that's basically where stuff like Frankenstein, the whole design of like ghouls and monster makeup just comes from the soldiers coming back from World War One. That's how people as a culture dealt with that was horror movies. That's actually something that I'll also mention in a second. Um so World War One starts because of Prince Zip's killing of uh Ferdinand. Eventually there would be thirty seven million casualties. This war would wrap. When I say casualties, I don't mean just all deaths. Casualties mean maiming, you know, or missing in action. The waffle distilleries that were burned down. Exactly. Um, Try recovering a national economy now. <laughs> um, but to give you an idea of like what exactly the First World War caused, and this idea of cause and effect, some of the fallout from the First World War. Naturally. World War II happened because of World War One. The war would end up collapsing the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the German Empire, the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, all these old powers. I mean, it pretty around. much led to the end of empires as a concept. Yeah. This was also the beginning of the end of the British Empire. The British would win, be on the victory side of the war, but they would eventually lose their empire. That It would really start full on in World War Two and by the 50s, you know, the, this this grand empire that the sun never sat on was no more. Um, it's, it's fascinating to look at that from a historical context and take the, you know, the ground level horror out of it and just look at it like purely like from a god's eye view. It seems like that was well, the first world war was this almost necessary uh, clean slate that the entire 20th century was built upon. Because yes. if that had never happened, it really makes you wonder, like, what would the horrifying state of events today have been with all of those empires inevitably clashing again right. and I mean, again and again? Yeah, it was horrible, but, yeah, some people have argued that because we saw sort of the effects of these governments, these kings and these absolute – these autocrats and these absolute monarchs, and we sort of – that broke away, and we sort of emerged from the First World War uh, a lot more uh, egalitarian. Um, yeah, could you imagine in present day there still being wars for territory? Uh, now, now we just fight over stuff like oil. So. 
Thank God for that. Imagine you just wake up one morning and on CNN it turns out uh, Germany is currently going to war with us over San Diego. So <laughs> we got to deal with that. Oh, look at that. The Ottomans are back at it with the Greeks. All right, cool. They go to war for Mississippi and we're all like, take it. Just- <laughs> you can have it. Seriously, people talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with their you know, endless fight over the Gaza Strip. That was just the world back then and would have still been like that today. Imagine that on a global scale. Um, there's also a lot more uh, far-reaching fallout from the First World War. Um, the Soviet Union was created in the ashes of the Russian Empire. Radicalism, sort of, like, anarchy. Like, it's just, like, I read this book about, like, 1919, 1918. It's just crazy how crazy things were at the time. Like, it really started a lot of social and conscious movements. Like, stuff like women's suffrage come from women sort of seeing as men went to war, like, you know, we can do stuff like men can, you know, um... And sort of the early civil rights movement come from these black soldiers going to France and being treated like normal people by the French, but spit at and called horrible names by the people that they were supposed to be fighting for back home. Technically, the French were just rude to everyone equally. (laughs) He's not spitting on me more than he's spitting on that white man. He spit on me just because I'm an American, not because I'm black. Um, Speaking of France, that was sort of the end of... France as a global power or as a major power. Cause Just a surreal thought. France, yeah. France was a motherfucker back in the day, man. Like Napoleon, like they almost ruled the world had they had they caught a few lucky breaks. But now we think – like I've, I think I've talked about it before on this podcast, but I don't like the idea when people talk about you know, France as you know, cheese-eating surrender monkeys because the French army – that went to war in 1914 were some of the bravest, I think, some of the most courageous people who had ever been on this world. Like You read about some of the horrors that they had to go through and how they put themselves through that year after, not just the French, but the Germans and the British, just some of the horrors I just can't imagine in my 20th, 21st century upbringing. Going through that, being asked to charge a machine gun nest time after time, watching your friends die from poison and poison gas and starving to death and infection and just yeah. just slowly losing their minds and it just for France at least they lost they lost something like twenty percent of all their men from age eighteen to thirty five. They they talk about how. They collapsed so easily in the Second World War. It's because all the men who fought, who would have been able to fight, were dead. You know. Even still, I mean, the French citizens fought tooth and nail against the Nazis in the early days of the war. Exactly. The French are tough as hell. I mean, yeah, I just just some of the stuff they went through. Um, I mean, people uh, give the French shit for just being so relatively like, laid back and. Seemingly apathetic about global affairs. I think that's just because, as a nation, they're shell-shocked from the amount of shit they saw in the 20th century. Exactly. Kind of like Japan. Yeah, meanwhile, we kind of got lucky in terms of all that. That was actually what I was going to mention, that America made off like – like, seriously, before America got into the war, they were the winner of the First World War because all the the money, wealth, power, and influence – that Britain owned, they pretty much gave to America for supplies 
and over the course of three plus years that America was neutral. Um, the the reason why Wall Street in New York City is now like the wealth capital of the, of the world is because Britain sacrificed all that to fight this war, and we took it. We gladly took all that, uh, you know. Um, We're kind of like the stewards who took over the throne at the fall yeah. of the British Empire. And Woodrow Wilson, 1917, when he declares war on Germany because of uh, U-boats uh, sinking American vessels, he uses a phrase, um, we must make the world safe for democracy. And those words, in some form or another, have been echoed by almost every president, American president since. His decision to go abroad to fight wars when our history, 150 years before, you know, of past, uh, in, had taught us that Americans don't do that. We stick to our own affairs. And for once, we sort of reached out to Europe to get involved in a foreign conflict, something that we would do again and sort of it, that the Second World War would cement our reputation as world police. But it was the First World War that really did that. And... um also coming out of it was, uh, of course, the Cold War. Uh, Soviet Union is created in the aftermath of the First World War. Uh, America rises, these two great political sides. Um, the Middle East, I mean, when the Ottoman Empire falls, Britain and France just draw fucking lines across the Middle East. There, there you go, there you they, go. They jigsaw that motherfucker. Your country's now there, live together. And that creates all kinds of ethnic tension that... Like, Saudi Arabia didn't exist until the First World War. Um, uh, there's this thing that come out of the First World War called the Balfour Declaration, which guaranteed that one day there would be a permanent Jewish homeland. Israel finds its origins in the First World War. You know, the, like you said earlier, the Israel-Palestine conflict, that's where it starts. That's where Iraq, Iraq and Iran were created in the aftermath of the First World War. You can almost, because of the Soviet Union, because of the Middle East situation, you can string it back, the chain of events, to say that the First World War inadvertently caused 9-11. I mean, it did. The rise of Middle East uh, and Islamic fundamentalism and the Soviet Union in Afghanistan and that war in Afghanistan, it all just trails back to where, I mean, it's almost like six degrees of the First World War. You know, you can trace almost anything back. So you can make the argument that... Gavrilo Princip is the greatest mass murderer in all of history. <laughs> exactly. Harvey Oswald's got his work cut out for him with this. That's right. He has like this whole Walter White sort of scenario <laughs> where you just imagine him like just on the phone and everybody's getting killed. But instead of a prison yard, it's in the, you know, battlefield. Well, Princip did bring that Zeppelin down. <laughs> Zeppelin 43. Zeppelin 43 down over Berlin. Uh, so... We've seen what hell Prince Zipath wrought, but now Oswald. So when I laugh, last mentioned Oswald, he, he after moping around the Soviet Union for a couple of years and finding a wife, they all moved back to Dallas. And he sort of works a bunch of different jobs um, in Dallas. And this is something that's been linked to Oswald. They're not really sure how true it is, but the Warren Commission at least puts him the blame to this. In early 1963, he attempted to assassinate General Edwin Walker, a army general who lived in the Dallas area. He was a staunch conservative, a staunch segregationist, and a rabid anti-communist. Um, using an Italian rifle, Oswald fired at Walker from outside his home. Being Oswald, the bullet grazed Walker's forearm but didn't <laughs> seriously injure him. He was aiming for the elbow. 
<laughs> Damn, so close. I just like how, like any good serial killer, he starts out small, then <laughs> slowly moves up. <laughs> he experimented no, no. on himself. No, in Oswald's case, it was going from the jungle to a general. So Kennedy is, of course, right in between. Now, after he missed the general, or well, he you know, didn't kill him, Oswald left. And it wasn't until a couple. It wasn't until after the Kennedy assassination that they would link him to the murder. Um, it was, remained unsolved until then, or the attempted murder. Um, so, in spring of 1963, Oswald went to New Orleans, and there he acted as the sole member of this organization called Fair Play for Cuba Committee. This was an organization that was uh, against the U.S.'s uh, anti-Cuba and anti-Castro. Uh, policies because that's something else that you can tie into the first world war with with the rise of communism you know cuba's revolution in castro who knows what would have happened there so what it's interesting to note that oswald um when he was uh handing out flyers condemning the u.s policy in cuba there was an address that was stamped on some of them and this address was a building that housed a rabid anti-Castro organization. And this is where some people claim that Oswald was like a double agent or an intelligence source and all this other stuff. that He was working for the FBI, you know, to infiltrate anti-Castro and leftist groups, whatever. But that wasn't really mentioned in the Warren Report. It's just something I'm throwing out there. That was a service he had to pull off in order to get back into the U.S. Yeah, you, you may be onto that. I don't know. You're right. He was let back in real easy. Um, in uh, September of 63, he's supposed to have gone to Mexico City. Um, there's a photo of him outside the Mexican embassy. Some people would doubt that's him, but according to the Warren Commission, he visits Cuban and Soviet uh, ambassadors there and attempts to go to Cuba. Uh, he wants a visa to go to Cuba, and he's turned down by both the Soviet and the Cuban consulates. He did not commit or attempt suicide this time, though. They were like, hit a shoulder and we'll talk next time. <laughs> in early October, he gets a job uh, in Dallas at the Dallas School Book Depository. Uh, a few weeks after that, uh, FBI agents actually come to his home and question him. Um, but he's never there, and they keep returning, and they sort of harass his wife. And Oswald would write the FBI letter that said, quote, let this be a warning. I will blow up the FBI and the Dallas Police Department, <laughs> Dallas Police Department if you don't stop bothering my wife. End quote. And, so he, signed, and he signed just, his name on it. <laughs> I just love how this dude who couldn't even hit one general was threatening the entire FBI. Um, near the end of November, uh, it's announced that President Kennedy's visit in Dallas and his um, his parade route, like. Transferred and his parade route was published in the Dallas newspaper, and the route just so happened to bypass Oswald's uh, workplace. So on November 22nd of 1963, Oswald left home. He left behind $170 in his wedding ring. He went to work with a large package that he told employees were curtain rods. And at 11.15 that day, he was last seen by employees on the sixth floor. At 12.30, President Kennedy's motorcade comes through. Uh, Dealey Plaza is carrying President Kennedy in one car, President Kennedy, his wife Jackie, the Duke governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife are all in the car. Interesting to note, uh, Vice President Lyndon Johnson was 
about six cars back from Kennedy. There were actually three future presidents in Dallas at the time of Kennedy's assassination. There was Lyndon Johnson. Richard Nixon was giving a speech uh, halfway across town. And then also meeting with people, meeting with old men to discuss him running for Congress was uh, George H.W. Bush. So you've got four, you've got four presidents in in Dallas at that time. I always thought that was interesting. Some people claim conspiracy for. I I can see maybe Nixon being there of some sort, but it's not like Nixon and George Bush were you know on the grassy knoll. <laughs> God damn it, Bush. You got to lean into the shot. Richard, if you don't stop nagging me, I'm going to – now his brains are everywhere. <laughs> we were this close to getting Jackie. America's secret odd couple. Uh, like I said, 1230, Kennedy, uh, his motorcade passes the book depository. And as they're passing, three shots are fired by Oswald from the sixth floor of the book depository. Um President Kennedy would die on the way to the hospital. Governor Connolly was seriously wounded. And there was also a bystander who was wounded when a bullet fragment uh, nicked his face. So you've got a total three shots, one dead, one seriously wounded, and one minor wounded. So, And also it should be interesting to note that none of their elbows were harmed. <laughs> um, actually, John Connolly did have his wrists shattered by a bullet fragment. So he got close. Soon after the shots were fired, Oswald ran from the book depository and went home. On his way home, he was stopped by a Dallas patrolman named J.D. Tippett. And Tippett was questioning him. Oswald pulled out a forty-five revolver he kept on him and killed him. Three shots in the head. Oswald fled to a nearby movie theater and hides without paying for a movie ticket. And, you know, the, the clerk working at the movie theater calls the police... Um, and a report of a suspicious man close by Kennedy and Tippett's shooting caused uh, a lot of police to show up. Question, uh, what movie did he go to see? I can't remember. Um, Please tell me it was uh, Beach Blanket Bingo. I have it was to, the I, John Wilkes Booth story. I looked at, you know, that's one of those weird, that, those chain emails. I always see people talk about, oh, how freaky the coincidences between Kennedy and Booth were like, like I mean, not Kennedy, but Oswald and Booth, like Oswald shot at at Kennedy in a warehouse and went to a theater and Booth shot Lincoln in the theater and was arrested in a warehouse. Ooh. Um, Meanwhile, Lee Harvey Oswald went to go see Our American Cousin, the film <laughs> adaptation. Yes. His words as he was being arrested were six separate tyrannists. Death to T-Rex. After Oswald's arrested, they originally, they just, at first they arrested him just for Tippett's murder. And they send they send him to Dallas headquarters, uh, PD headquarters. Um, he's questioned and he's brought before reporters and asked if he shot Tippett or Kennedy. And he said, uh, "quote They take me in because of the fact that I have lived in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy." Unquote. And two days later, on Sunday, November 24th, policemen and reporters they filled the garage of the Dallas PD, and Oswald's being led out to a car. Um, they're taking him to county lockup to wait trial for, at least for Tippett's murder and Kennedy's as well. Um, and as they're taking him to the to the car, Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub owner and a guy who's reported to have mob ties, leaps from the crowd and shoots Oswald in the chest. The entire event actually plays out over live TV. I worked with a guy, an older fella, who he was a teenager when Kennedy was killed, and he mentioned like him and his family were eating dinner that Sunday night when they saw Oswald die. It just freaked them all the fuck out, as seeing a man die on TV would. Um, 
That led to the cynicism generation. Ah, I'll get to that. Ruby was dragged into custody by the police. Um, Oswald would be pronounced dead at Parkland Memorial Hospital, the same hospital where Kennedy was pronounced dead. Um, later, when he was asked, Ruby said he killed Oswald in the name of revenge for killing Kennedy, and he wanted to save Jackie Kennedy the grief of having to go through a trial. A week after Kennedy's death, new president Lyndon Johnson creates the Warren Commission to investigate the president's murder, and they rule that Oswald acted alone in killing Kennedy, and there was no wider conspiracy. And that was the fourth and final time, or so far, knock on wood, that uh, a president has been assassinated. He, of course, is the only one to have been killed with a rifle. All the other three were killed with uh, handguns up close. Um, Great aftermath of Kennedy's death. Obviously, LBJ becomes president. Um, As president, LBJ actually does a lot of good. He sort of, Kennedy is as charming and charismatic as Kennedy was. He wasn't good with Congress. A lot of his legislation stalled. And Johnson was not the type to let legislation stall. He sort of threatened and bullied Congress till they actually passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voter Rights Act, stuff that had been needed in legislation for a hundred years, you know, ever since Lincoln helped free the slaves, you know, no one had, you know, they'd been denied all these rights and stuff. And Johnson sort of took took the bull by the horns and did that, you know. And he just walked down to the floor of Congress and was like, now nah, listen here, you boys, you're going to give equal rights to these black folks. Uh, you're going to have to see old Jumbo. And when Jumbo comes out, he don't go back in until he's played. Oh, God. Oh, now, oh here he comes. Uh, now, now I've got a sick thought involving LBJ and Senator Richard Russell. Ugh. What the fuck you gonna do? What the fuck are you gonna do? Goddamn president. Also, um, people, uh, say that there was, people say there was a loss of innocence. I always feel like that's being a little too over dramatic about this idea of loss of innocence because, I mean, if you were a kid at the time, yeah, maybe. But. Yeah, uh, I don't really think in a, terms of a natural national scope that really happened until the 70s what sort of, it sort of started something though because when both jfk and bobby kennedy were sort of fixated on cuba and castro and johnson sort of shifts priorities as president he he turns away from cuba and he instead focuses on vietnam and southeast asia and he ends up opening that whole can of worms and vietnam his decision to pour money and manpower and weapons into Vietnam would actually start, a lot of people argue, a second sort of mini civil war across this country. He sort of, this country at one point was just at its own throat fighting over Vietnam. He would actually win a term as president in his own right, but he would, um, he would decline for a, a second term because the infighting in the country was so bad that he knew he couldn't be elected, and that opens the door for, uh, Richard Nixon, who takes full advantage of this fractured political scene in America to easily get elected president over Hubert Humphrey and Nixon sort of together, LBJ in Vietnam, Nixon and Watergate sort of usher in this brand new era of like cynicism and loss of faith and trust in the, uh, in our public officials and sort of our government and sort of just America in general, like, the, the, we were sort of, after World War II, we were riding that apex thing. You know, we were this nation that, you know, we were the best in the world, knew what was right, and Vietnam quickly, quickly showed us the error of our ways. 
Uh, After the Kennedy assassination, it was just America getting kicked in the balls over and over and over, like until the 90s. Um, and like, I know people talk about, like, like I said, the loss of the prestige, I guess, of the president. And to be fair, um, through a historical thing, like, just because there were a lot of guys who were president who weren't nice guys, who did bad things, plenty of bad things, but just something about, uh, I, I guess it's because so much was known about the bad things that Johnson and Nixon did. Um, it's because Johnson, there's this term called credibility gap because about halfway through his term as president, uh, people just figured out Johnson lies. You know, he lied about Vietnam. He lies about his own, like, personal life, his own backstory. He, he lies about everything. So why should we trust this man, you know, that's supposed to be our president? And, and Nixon didn't do anything to, to, you know, uh, repute that claim when it came out that he was, you know, using, uh, CIA, rogue CIA and FBI agents to sabotage political candidates and launder money and wiretap political opponents. Which, which again, I would say was a tremendous blow to the country, but at the same time, I feel like that was kind of a band-aid that needed to happen because really, you shouldn't respect the president. You shouldn't wholly trust the government. There should be a loss of innocence there, because on a grand scale like that, innocence kills. That's right. Um, and something too, like you think, like you, the stuff that come out about Kennedy after he was killed is just amazing. Like some of the problems that he had, you know. Of course, his rabid infidelity, um, the adventures of his dick. His drug problems, his health problems. That um, secret Kennedy cousin they were keeping in the basement. <laughs> it's oh, just Jojo that, Kennedy. It's like the stuff with World War One. It's something that with my, you know, with how sort of politics and the media today, I just can't imagine something like that being kept under wraps. You know, so uh, through three well-timed shots, I guess Oswald uh, actually changed presidents. He. he he did more than 20 million voters could do, I guess, with the ballot. Um, the, the immediate, like I said, the immediate after effect of that was Johnson becomes president. He does good things, but he does a lot of bad things, and Nixon does a lot of bad things, and sort of our political landscape was changed once for all. Maybe not as dramatic as what Princeton did, but still, I think that ties in nicely that these two men, for horrible, horrible reasons, changed the world, and they made a difference. And I think... I've spoken long enough about these two. I've, yeah, seriously, Matt, are you in love with them? Well, I'll show you a picture of Prince later, but you'll see. What, <laughs> just those eyes, those those baggy, beady-looking eyes. So dreamy in his mustache. But uh, so you two have heard me expound seemingly eternally on these two. I ask the immortal question to the two of you now: Who would win in a fight? Question for the ages. And so the way we're going to do this, I guess, is sort of how we did when we did the the presidential thing. Um, one of you will pick a combatant, or if you want, I can assign you a combatant. Oh, I n- definitely know who I want to go with with this. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll just I'll step aside then. Fuck you. Um, and so I guess what you'll do is like we did before is you'll both sort of counter and counter how you think your your man, if you will, will uh. Would we'll do in this situation. Victorious. Yes. 
So we've got, in one corner, we've got Lee Harvey Oswald, who will be ripping Oswald. I relinquish the rights to Lee Harvey Oswald, because with a name like Gavrilo Princip, only a man as flamboyant as I can decide his final fate. Okay. I agree with that logic. All right. So I imagine these two would fight, let's say, downtown Sarajevo. Near, near, near the, near the sandwich shop with its very shallow river. Why are you giving him home field advantage? Because I, I like saying Sarajevo. Dallas is just, only Dallas I like. You're putting the odds against my combatant purely on happenstance. All right, well, fine. How about this? Dealey Plaza. There we go. We're in Dealey Plaza now. Look at that. The power of the mind, Alex. We're in the Bosnian embassy in Dallas. <laughs> oh, okay, no, okay. That's from the book you're depository. In the, you're, in the, you're in the Slavic part of Dallas, little Sarajevo. Yes. All right, all right. That I can go. I can go with that. So tell me how this fight would go, gentlemen. Well, I imagine things would open up when Harvey Oswald – his daughter is looked at strangely by someone on the street, and in Oswald's warped mind, he takes that to mean an offense by the Bosnian people. So he <laughs> writes a strongly worded letter to the Bosnian embassy, declaring that he will blow them and their country up if they ever look at his The whole country. Again. And that is when tensions mount. <laughs> the powder keg that is little Sarajevo is threatening to blow. So they take this threat dead seriously. They send their top assassin <laughs> after Lee Harvey Oswald with one confirmed kill. <laughs> Gavrilo Prince. He's got two. The sandwich man. He's got two. He killed Franz Ferdinand's wife as well. Don't be sexist, James. Harvey Oswald, he's this is like five minutes after he's dropped the letter off at the post office. They're they're that good. So he's like with his daughter, like she has a little balloon. All of a sudden, something blocks out the sunlight. Dun 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 In his stealth balloon is Gavrilo Prince. He descends from the Zeppelin like a cord attached to his back, like he's Ethan Hunt. <laughs> Dangles directly above Lee Harvey Oswald and lobs an assassin grenade at his feet and then jumps back up into his escape zeppelin. Lee Harvey Oswald, seeing the grenade, takes it. He specifically goes to find an American mailbox just for <laughs> the insult of it and throws it in. He runs... And covers his ears and bends down, waits for it to explode. Then, with his box of curtain rods, unleashes <laughs> his twenty-two pistols. His twin twenty-two pistols <laughs> starts firing at the balloon. The bullets ricochet off of the balloon, and eventually one pops. So Gabriello has to abandon his, his stealth craft. Goodbye, Siegfried! It was an honor, Prisa. Navarillo, using his mustache as a parachute, glides gently onto the roof of the Dallas Book Depository. He's on Oswald's turf now. He goes through looking for a secret cachet of improvised assassination weapons and finds Oswald's war room. He grabs an Uzi from the display and barges through the window, oh, shooting at Lee Harvey Oswald as he falls. 
<laughs> and Lee Harvey Oswald, seeing that this is happening and that he's infiltrated his own war room, ducks for cover behind his armored vehicle, <laughs> which just so happened to have near the area. It came for him immediately upon request. The Oswald go-go. Yes. <laughs> and as he's being fired upon, he then turns and he sees that a motorcade is coming up. A no. motorcade for like... <laughs> like a, a, a mayor or something. like. It's a gay bribery. Being fueled by the rage upon seeing this, he immediately runs for it and... Missing the hail of bullets that are coming down upon him. He dodges into the crowd, goes up to the person who is in the very back, and takes over the vehicle. He takes over the parade float, which I should say has Harvey Milk. Like, <laughs> Harvey Milk. Uh, two Harveys united by history. Yes. And he drives after his opponent, who lands on the street. Now, Prince up. He doesn't see Lee Harvey Oswald in the car just yet, but he knows he's in the crowd, and he begins dodging, dancing gay man, thrusting all around him, <laughs> when, unfortunately for him, they mistake his flamboyant cape and mustache as a sign that he's one of them, and is immediately mobbed by bears. No, off to you fools! This gives Lee Harvey Oswald a moment to get in. A lucky shot as he hits the gas and barrels through just hundreds of gay men. He begins firing wildly through the windshield at Princep, freeing himself from the bears. He uses his bracelets of truth to deflect the wrist-mounted attack. Patink, patink, patink. One of the bullets ends up grazing Harvey Oswald's elbow. <laughs> And he realizes, my god, this man is more skilled than even I am. <laughs> so he has to pull out the big guns. He pulls out a bigger curtain rod box. And inside is a flamethrower. <laughs> so he starts spewing out flame over the crowd. The most flamboyant gay men you have ever seen go flying on fire. Just screaming about how it's going to ruin their hair. Looks like I'm the real flamer, boys. <laughs> <laughs> and when he turns his flamethrower on the man who was taking control of his own war stash, he finds that he was grandstanding for too long, and the chamber is empty. He has run out of fuel for the flames. <laughs> Princep uses this opportunity to whip out his secret weapon. Stolen from Otto von Bismarck's cold, dead hands at the moment of his assassination, Princep pulls out Bismarck's web. My God! He fires the gun at Oswald, and electrified web shoots out and covers him, rooting him to the ground. Oswald shot. No, not like this. Not when Cuba needs me. And he goes down in front of a movie theater where he attempts to crawl, even with the electrified net, attempts to crawl inside. But the attendant, seeing that he's trying to gain entry, asks him for money. Oswald looks up, pleading, only for the attendant to deny him entrance. As he's lying on the ground, like the electrical wiring over him, he suddenly realizes that this is his moment. This is his moment where he will not go quietly into the night. 
<laughs> Today he is celebrating his Independence Day. So, pulling himself up, even as the electrical circuits begin to fry his nerves and render him virtually immovable, Jack Ruby <laughs> pulls, pulls up in another parade float of Freddie Mercury <laughs> and pulls out a machine gun, shouting, Oswald! And as Oswald tries to pull himself up, he is viciously gunned down, just exploding through the glass of the box office toll booth. <laughs> just like Michael Bay style, glass flying everywhere, there's an explosion for some reason. Then, swelling with this apparent victory, Gavrilo Princip lets his guard down just long enough to be shot through the shoulder by Lee Harvey Oswald's daughter. <laughs> she takes the string of her balloon and wraps it around his throat, execution style. <laughs> oh, little girl, I am on your side. Uh, he bashes her in the nose with his elbow, pulls himself free, just sees the pain and anguish that is going on here, the destruction and realizes there is only one way he can truly win against the Oswald family. He picks up Oswald's gun, places it in his mouth, and pulls the trigger, removing himself from the timeline <laughs> and rewriting the 20th century. <laughs> Lee Harvey Oswald was never born. <laughs> and everything fades out of existence, and Dallas is restored to a much more simpler time. A time where men cannot shape the way of history. And Emperor Winston Churchill presides <laughs> over the Holy Church of England far into the 2000s. Where he dies of natural causes. And that <laughs> is how the battle between Lee Harvey Oswald and Gavrilo Princip finally ends. With history itself being changed. With time being assassinated. I, I had to beat my mic when it got to that point, because the idea of history being erased, <laughs> I felt my knees cry. <laughs> that is the true victim of this fight. The timeline. Winner by technical time change, <laughs> Gavrilo Princip. You got a TKO. You're right. That was good. Well, that was a hell of a thing. <laughs> It was. And it was highly entertaining. So I think uh, props to you two for coming up with this, this idea to change up the format. It really worked. Uh, I had a blast. Yes. Um, so I guess that's where we'll end this before you two bastards erase any more time <laughs> history from my mind. We're now forbidden from doing that from any future episodes. Yeah. I'm fine with Harry Truman uh, dropping atomic bombs on everybody. But... <laughs> I draw the line at time itself in a race. Um, so, yeah, I guess we'll go ahead and wrap this baby up. You've been listening to Conjectural Combat. I've been the, uh, I've been, that's what I remember. I've been the fact master, Matt, and I've been joined today by our fight masters, Alex and James. I'd think of myself as a pugilist specialist. I need to work on my alliteration, but pugilist something. I need something with a P. Person. Pugilist. Pontificus Maximus. Okay. That'll be your P official title. Pugilist Puncher. 
Well, it's kind of redundant, pugilist puncher, because a pugilist is someone who punches. It's just a fancy way of saying it. It's a double alliteration. Puncher, puncher. That's what you just said. Puncher, puncher. All right, well, for this episode, this edition of Conjectural Combat, I've been uh, History, History, Matt, and joining me were Puncher, Puncher, Alex, and Puncher, Puncher, James. So I guess until next time. uh, We will see you on the Battlefield Battlefield. Battlefield Battlefield. I think that's a that's a good one to wrap it on. You can cut me at the very end there. I'm cutting you out of the entire podcast. Okay, well fuck you. You erased you've already erased my history. <laughs> what more do you need? Honestly, I thought PJ just came in with a giant typewriter. Thing, fuck, yo, recording. Ching. He's he's actually doing your finances. God damn it, PJ! Last time you did this, I got audited by the IRS. This has been a pulp podcast production. May I ask what you hope to achieve with this podcast? Those directors created these movies. They filled them with subtext, motifs, messages. They deserve to be discussed. The answer is irrelevant. Movies are simply entertainment, nothing more. Does it matter what they mean? Yes. Yes, it does. I don't understand. Well, Cody, I guess that's because I'm a human being. And you're a robot. (coughs) Oh, sorry. That's quite all right. Box office pulp. Big things have small beginnings. Hands up! Mr. Johnson, have you heard about those people who don't know about our podcast? Yes, sir. I've heard of them. Do you think anyone who doesn't know about our Southern-themed podcast should go to jail? No, sir. Do you think anyone who has heard about it but hasn't listened to our podcast should go to jail? No, sir, no. Do you think anyone who refuses to listen to our Southern-themed podcast should go to jail? No, sir, not really, no. Then what should happen? What would be a fair sentence? Do they deserve to die, Mr. Johnson? Do they deserve to die? Yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell! Matt Johnson was found innocent of all charges and resumed hosting his monthly podcast, Below the Bible Belt. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself... We now have the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think so. Let's go with, like, Image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn? He has Angela, who's, like, Lady Hercules. She is, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's Asgardian, I think it's, it's fair play, so... Hey, she's not technically Asgardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has, like, a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the 
pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novel. <laughs>